To great speeches and interviews on Axis Sacramento and The Voice, I'm Steve Lerman. Coming up first on this program is Greed, Power, and Endless Wars. Ever since 9-11, America has fought an endless war on terror, seeking enemies everywhere. James Bryson reveals the shocking corruption, waste, and abuse of our metatastizing homeland security industrial complex. Power corrupts, but it is endless wars that corrupt absolutely. Price of the war on terror. If you count the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and the broader global war on terror, plus the 
growth of uh, counterterrorism programs in the United States and creation of new agencies like the Department of Homeland Security. I think it's probably one of the largest transfers of wealth in American history. That's journalist James Risen. We talk with him about his explosive new book, Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. Then climate talks are happening again. Is the political will there yet to push for real solutions? Climate change has this weird capacity, but people can be very concerned about it when they think about it, but not be able to bring it to mind when they're asked what they're concerned about. That's George Marshall. He tells us what's been keeping the climate crisis from seizing the hearts and minds of the public and how to change that. His important book is Don't Even Think About It. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. The shocking revelations from the U.S. Senate report on CIA torture starkly reveal just how far our country has fallen in moral standing since we began the war on terror. It's but one part of the terrible price we've paid in blood, treasure, and our national soul as a result of U.S. government policy in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. My guest, acclaimed journalist James Risen, has been bringing the story of government overreach in the national security sphere to light as investigative reporter for the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer in 2006 along with colleague Eric Lichtblau for their reports on NSA surveillance programs, work that's made him a target for possible legal action by the Obama administration to force him to reveal his confidential sources. Risen's new book, Pay Any Price, reveals the shocking corruption, waste, and abuse of our metastasizing homeland security industrial complex. One salient example which Risen discusses in his book is the 81 million dollars we paid to a pair of private contractor psychologists to advise a CIA torture program, a program we now know revealed nothing of value to the safety of Americans, but led our government to commit serious war crimes. From the bankrupting of the American taxpayer to the moral bankruptcy of the state, Risen's powerful book delineates in detail the price we are all paying for the war on terror. So, James Risen, welcome to Writer's Voice. Your book, Pay Any Price, lays out the various prices that we are paying in blood and treasure. Let's start with treasure. The cost is $4 trillion and counting. Can you help us make some sense of that figure and how it has been arrived at? That's the best estimate I've been able to find for the total cost of the war on terror. If you count the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and the broader global war on terror, plus the growth of uh, counterterrorism programs in the United States and creation of new agencies like the Department of Homeland Security, it's an estimate, but it, it shows the massive scale of uh, what we have done since 9-11. And I think it's probably one of the largest transfers of wealth in American history. And no, hardly anybody's really talking about it. Transfers of wealth? Well, a lot of the money has gone to contractors or to create new jobs in the federal government, in the intelligence community, or in counterterrorism. And it's money from American taxpayers that's gone to create a new uh, national security apparatus that didn't really exist on the same scale before, both uh, contractors and government agencies. And so it's, it's really helped turn Washington into a much richer town than it was before. I think one of the statistics I point 
find out is, I forget the exact numbers, but most of the richest counties in the United States now are in the Washington area. And um, I think it's kind of ironic that especially so many people are always worried about deficit spending and on domestic uh, spending and other things, but they never look at the dramatic increases in uh, counterterrorism and national security spending, which is far outstripped all other growth of any other uh, programs. And you ascribe that to the intersection of greed and power that's dependent on continuing the war on terror. You call it the Homeland Security Industrial Complex. Talk more yes. about that term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, basically, if you remember uh, after 9-11, Dick Cheney said, you know, the gloves come off. And what he really meant by that was was that we were deregulating national security. And at the same time, we were pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into counterterrorism and uh, national security. And so you had this whole new apparatus that with few regulations and little oversight with massive new spending. And the government, you know, the people at the FBI, the CIA, the Pentagon, had more money than they really knew what to do with. And so they started spending it on contractors who claimed that they had secret the secret to finding Osama bin Laden or solving the next terrorist attack or whatever. So it became like a gold rush. Like a, the, It was kind of like Washington's version of the Internet bubble. One of those uh, guys who came right in was Dennis Montgomery, uh, a con artist who you call a perfect case study of what you're talking about. Who was he? Dennis Montgomery was a uh, computer software expert, so self-styled expert, who in 2003, he was able to convince the CIA that he had super secret software that could identify hidden numbers and letters that were hidden in Al Jazeera news broadcasts. And the CIA became convinced that these were Al-Qaeda codes that were being sent to Al-Qaeda sleeper agents around the world to attack airplanes. And they became so convinced of this that at uh, Christmas time, 2003, they got President Bush to ground flights all over the world that were coming to the United States based on Montgomery's uh, numbers and letters, which they believed corresponded with flights that were scheduled to come to the U.S. And um, only later did they realize this was all a hoax and a fabrication. And uh, after they realized that, <clears throat> the CIA covered the whole thing up and never talked about it. And how much did he manage to make off with? Well, he had contracts with several different agencies at the military and um, throughout the government. And so he was making millions of dollars from the U.S. government. And he continued to get more contracts after this. That's one of the ama- most amazing things. He was getting contracts uh, into the start of the Obama administration. You cite one study that says that government spending on homeland security has been so excessive that the only way it could be considered cost-effective would be if it had prevented 1,667 terrorist attacks each year. Where? Yeah. yeah, I love that. I mean, that's that's. I thought that statistic gives you a real a real barometer for you know people love cost benefit analysis. At least they say they do. But that's one. If you could stop four terrorist attacks a day, then the amount of money we've been spending would make sense. Um, but it's so. It's just an ex- a way of saying what we've done is so far in excess of the actual threat that we face as a nation, um, that it's just, uh, we've just given in to uh, scaring ourselves to death with hyperbole and panic. A kind of war on terror that's been practiced on us. Yeah, we've terrorized ourselves. I mean, I quote uh, Brian Jenkins, who is a really thoughtful terrorism analyst at the RAND Corporation, and he said that nobody, he's, <laughs> I love this, 
statistic. He said that nobody would believe this, but the decade since 9-11 has actually been the safest in the United... We've had the fewest terrorist attacks in the United States since 9-11 than we've had in any decade since uh, the 1950s. Well, and nobody wants to think about that but because they all forget the bombings and the attacks from uh, either right-wing or left-wing groups uh, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, and yet we act as if terrorism is some new existential threat to the United States. Well, I guess some people would say that the reason we haven't had any more terrorist attacks is because we've been spending all this money. Yeah, that would be the argument of the government and it would be the argument used by the defenders of the war on terror. And it's one reason why we haven't had more of a debate is because we have allowed ourselves to believe that perfect security is the answer and it's the only thing politicians are willing to accept. And so there's no real debate because people say, well, I don't want to look soft on terrorism. I've got to agree to spend everything all the time and agree to every new program. Uh, Otherwise, someone is going to say I was soft on terrorism. And that's the political dynamic in this country today. Um, And it makes it impossible to have any real debate on these issues. We're kind of frozen as a society uh, on the kind of debate we can have.
to the interview of James Ryson by Francesca Rianan and Greed, Power, and Endless Wars. Well, let's talk about where some of the money has gone and and is going. And starting back, I remember, you know, in 2003, and so I remember beginning to hear after Paul Bremer took over as proconsul, I guess, of Iraq, boatloads of cash coming in. You actually tell us where that cash was stored and what happened. You said there was uh, thievery on an industrial scale. Tell us the story of the East Rutherford Operations Center and what happened there. Yes, it was a, it's an amazing story. And the, the United States and the Coalition Provisional Authority airlifted 12 to $14 billion in cash in $100 bills. They took it out of the East Rutherford, New Jersey currency facility of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. They drove it to Enders Air Force Base outside Washington. It was loaded onto C-17, Air Force C-17s and then airlifted to Baghdad International Airport and then convoyed from the airport to the Green Zone or to uh, the Iraqi Central Bank. And after that, a lot of it went missing and disappeared. The money was from the Development Fund for Iraq, which was a uh, Iraqi government account at the Fed that had been, it had been set up right after the invasion to hold uh, oil revenues of the Iraqi government. So it was Iraqi money, not U.S. taxpayer money, but still it was being in the custody of U.S. officials and of the CPA. It went missing, and then at various times, the Special Inspector General for Iraq, Stuart Bowen, investigated and kept finding that billions of it was unaccounted for or missing. He at one point stated that uh, I think almost $12 billion of the $20 billion in cash and funds that were sent were unaccounted for, because in addition to the 12 to $14 billion in cash, there was another fund or six billion sent by electronic funds transfers. Finally, he, he and his investigators tracked down nearly two billion dollars to a bunker in rural Lebanon where it had been stolen uh, from Baghdad and then moved to Lebanon by the people who stole it. And it's probably one of the largest robberies in modern history, at least one of the largest that people <laughs> know about. So how did this happen? I mean, uh, you know, theoretically, this was under the the purview of the U.S. Who, yeah. who took it? It's unclear exactly who. It's believed to be some powerful Iraqis who as yet remain unidentified. Bowen tried to get the CIA and the FBI involved in an investigation, and neither one wanted to get involved. He also met with Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki, and Maliki asked him questions about it and expressed anger at the way the U.S. had handled the money, but the Iraqi government never conducted an investigation. And I think the truth is that nobody really wants to find out the answers because the answers would probably be very awkward and inconvenient. Well, what what do you think this says about this security industrial complex and how it's been created? What are, what are the systemic reasons that underlie the ability of this kind of theft on a grand scale to happen? Well, there's been very little oversight, very little regulation. And it goes back, to, I think, to that basic premise of the way the war on terror started was uh, the gloves come off, we do whatever you think is necessary. Uh, don't worry about the rules. Don't worry about oversight. And I think that was the, the climate. People just have been conducting operations without any um, any worry that someone is going to call them into account. I think it goes back to that issue you said earlier, you know, wouldn't some people think that they don't care how much money is spent or how many lives are lost as long as there's not a terrorist attack in the United States? Right. And, and yet you always hear when it comes to schools, we shouldn't be throwing money at schools to make them better. Right, right. And so this, we have a fetish for perfect security on this issue. And it's, um, I think it's, 
leads you to uh, a lot of unintended consequences. And those are the consequences that you talk about in your book, James Risen, in Pay Any Price, Greed, Power, and Endless War. You write about KBR. I mean, one of the prices, uh, many of the cost, is, is paid in blood, not just Iraqi civilians, although that's a huge amount and very underreported, but also, of course, our own soldiers who we've sent over there. Uh, just before Armistice Day, a paralyzed Iraq war vet turned peace activist Thomas Young died. He was quite eloquent about the cost in blood. You write about it as well. One of the things you talk about is something that I had not heard at all about, and I follow these issues pretty closely, and that is the role of KBR, Halliburton's, you know, they used to be under Halliburton, which was connected to, to Dick Cheney. The issue of lung damage on a massive epidemic scale, connect the dots. Well, the KBR is, was the largest defense contractor in the war zone in Iraq. They provided all the basic services for the U.S. military, food, housing, water, and many other basic services that the military used to perform for itself but now it's outsourced, all those things. Uh, and so KBR, throughout the war in Iraq, made about $39 billion in contracts in Iraq. One of the contracts they had was for waste disposal at U.S. bases in Iraq. And they, um, what they were supposed to be doing was providing environmentally sound waste disposal. What they did, ultimately, though, was build burn pits. They just dug huge pits right outside many of the major uh, military bases in Iraq and dumped everything, all kinds of waste, you know, from, you know, large parts to human, you know, to trash, to, to all kinds of waste that you could imagine. And then they would pour jet fuel on it and burn it. And these uh, big pits, burn pits, would burn all day, and they would leave huge uh, clouds of smoke over the bases. And a lot of U.S. personnel would come back from uh, Iraq complaining about various lung or breathing disorders. So there began to be kind of a syndrome of lung disorders that doctors were beginning to see in the United States. And a number of uh, veterans who have been injured with this lung injury have sued KBR over the way in which they handled these burn pits. And KBR has fought back, and these lawsuits have gone back and forth. And what I describe in the book is how one epidemiologist at the Veterans Administration, who was doing surveys of veterans of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, began to see a lot of correlation between people, veterans who said that they had served in Iraq and veterans who said they had breathing or developed breathing or lung problems. And he felt that uh, the Veterans Administration, his bosses there, didn't want to hear that kind of information because it would raise all kinds of questions. So it's an, it really interesting how much, you know, it, it, to me, it's kind of like the Agent Orange issue of Vietnam. And it's one thing that I think we're going to continue to hear more about as, as veterans get older and um, you know, more of these kind of illnesses uh, develop. In Vietnam, with Agent Orange, you didn't have the huge proportion of contractors, of private contractors. You didn't have KBR. It was a U.S. Right. Army that was using Agent Orange, and eventually there were able to be hearings, and uh, mm -hmm. the issue came out. What is the impact of having so much of this war on terror being fought by private contractors for veterans to get redress and for mm -hmm. these kinds of things to be investigated and come to light? Well, a lot of veterans or their families for various issues have to go to court, to a U.S. court, to try and 
sue these companies. Uh, KBR, for instance, uh, a woman named Cheryl Harris, who I describe in the book, her son was a Green Beret in Iraq who was electrocuted in a shower in his quarters in Baghdad. And um, an investigation showed that it was there was faulty wiring and KBR was responsible for handling the wiring in that building. And um, she has sued KBR for in relationship to her son's death. And that case, I think, is still pending and still before uh, the Supreme Court. So let's let's move on a little bit to Obama, because you've actually said that Obama has made this national security state permanent. How has he done that? How has he both continued what was begun under the previous administration and changed it or promoted it? Well, I think, you know, basically he has continued and extended the Bush administration war on terror almost intact. The only real change he's made is on torture. He stopped the enhanced interrogation program, which actually had already been stopped under Bush, but he issued new rules to prevent it from being uh, reinstated. And so apart from that, he continued the war in Afghanistan, in fact, escalated troop levels there. He continued the war in Iraq until the deadline set by Bush originally for troop withdrawals. He has kept Guantanamo open after saying he was going to close it. He has expanded the use of drones and had more drone strikes than Bush ever did. And he's allowed the NSA's domestic surveillance program to grow far beyond anything that Bush originally contemplated. And so I think that shows that there is much more continuity than anything else. I think it's partly because he felt like he wanted to focus on domestic policy at the beginning of his administration and uh, so didn't want to have a fight with Republicans on national security. I also think he is probably more conservative on these issues than people realized when he was uh, elected. Call your broker to check on a rumor That could cause you to lose your good humor When you see your next statement you'll see Which funds have paid off savings Your investments are now misbehaving Your retirement prospects are caving Because all of your hedge funds were run by Bernie You need some help with your 401k. Your last accountant has just joined AA. Now you will have to scrimp. Could your funds be more limp if they were all run by a chimp? Your pension should be fat because your broker once mentioned a potential new Apple invention. You'd be rich, but you thought who'd want something called an iPod? You'll need some help with your 401k. Your plan to quit work is now DOA. No, you weren't very smart. Soon a new job you'll start. Hello, and, and welcome to Walmart. <laughs> you'll have to live at the YMCA. And now, messages from Access Sacramento. <laughs> 